Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Mendham Hills Community Church. I have a question as we get started. Have you guys heard of the U-Bend happiness theory? It has to do with a common pattern in the human life, and it's been studied, it's prevalent across culture, it holds true regardless of time or income or wealth. What research consistently shows is that people, get ready for this, people peak in happiness at age 18 and again at age 82. Thus, the U-bend. Think about it, right? When you start out in life, you're fresh and excited about the future. You don't have that many responsibilities. There are all kinds of possibilities, and so you tend to be happier. And for different reasons, you also tend to get, to get and become happier at an older age. You're, you're wiser. You have a, a sense of accomplishment. You care less about pleasing people. You're out of the demanding years of child rearing. Now, if you take a deeper dive into the numbers in this theory, it reveals some interesting data. Life starts out generally positive, but then curtails sometime after our youth when the pursuit of goals, things like career advancement, replace the pursuit of happiness. In a sense, and you know this, when reality sets in. And so then what happens is happiness continues to nosedive through our middle ages. And now listen to this. Church at Mendham Hills. The apex of misery varies anywhere between the ages of 35 and 62. Guys, if you're watching at home this morning, if you're between the ages of 35 and 62, give me a shout out in the comments section. The median age for most misery 46. In general, here is what we know across time and cultures. Happiness hits an all-time low for people in their 40s and early 50s, which is fairly interesting for, well, I think for almost everybody in my listening audience this morning. Now, I'm sure we have some teens tuning in who are 18 this morning, and to all of you I say, enjoy, because it's likely things aren't going to get any better for any time soon. But for the rest of us, while I'm glad that I have now once again in my own life entered the upswing of the U-curve, it's a long way. It's a long life. Like, it's a really long time between 18 and 82. Like, a really long time. And I can't help but wonder if there's something for us to learn here. Welcome to this week's edition of Say This and Not That. We have and are learning together that our words make our worlds. The words we speak to others, the words that have been spoken to us and over us, and as you'll see today, the words that we, we way, way too often speak to ourselves, they have the power to, power to actually make our worlds. Nobody said it better than James, the younger brother of Jesus who in his letter, which we have as part of the New Testament in your Bible, actually, it's interesting, scholars believe that James' letter might be the earliest written book in the New Testament. James said this regarding the power of our words. The tongue, because it's so hard to control, corrupts the whole person and sets the whole course of his life on fire. Your words set the course of your life. And so this week, I, I can't help but wonder where words and the you-bend-of-life concept connect. 
And if the words that we speak to ourselves and others can impact all of us who live in those mire years caught somewhere between 18 and 82. Do you guys remember 18? Yet I, I know the high school years can be tough, and heck, they're tougher right now than ever. And, and I know that our teens are under more pressure. They're suffering under the weight of anxiety like at no other time in history. But there is one more thing I know about being 18. Having been that once myself, raising four of them in my home, when you're 18, for the most part, you still believe that all things are possible. Not every teen, but many, even most, live with a natural expectancy and wonder about what life is going to bring to them next. What college am I going to go off to? What, what career will I lay hold of? Is today the day I meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Do you remember being 18, thinking about your life? I can't wait to, to play ball with my son. I, I, I can't wait to, to buy my little girl's first dress. I wonder where I, I'll live. I, I think I'd like a house with a yard. Possibilities are endless. Expectancies are everywhere. And there's lots of both. But something begins to happen in our 20s. It's called life. And reality begins to set in. We don't get into the dream college. We wind up at our safety school. We, we met Mr. Right. And he turned out to be Mr. Wrong. And this career thing is not all that it was cracked up to be. And, and man, do you remember this? I remember it so clearly. When you got your first real job after high school or college, do you remember when you realized you're not going to be getting the summers off anymore and you were just going to have to keep on working? It turns out that the house doesn't have the yard I hope for. The basement floods when it rains. My kids don't even like baseball. And a life that was once defined by possibility and expectancy, it slowly transitions into a life of limitations and letdowns. And where we once embraced our potential, we now live defined by our deficiencies. And a new little two-word soundtrack starts to play in our heads. I can't. I can't. I used to think I could, but reality has set in for me now, and I can't. I can't do that. I can't achieve that. Now, look, that's not the worst thing. There's truth to the I can't soundtrack. My mom and dad, because they were good parents like many of you, they used to tell me I could do anything I wanted to do or be anything I wanted to be. But it didn't take until 18 to figure out that, I don't know, maybe by the age of 13, I realized that I was never going to be the shortstop for the New York Mets. Although if you think it through and you watch the Mets long enough, you might believe I actually could be the shortstop for the New York Mets. But that's not the kind of reality setting in I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what happens to us as we grow up and we begin to think that our limitations, our faults and failures, that they have the final word over our futures. When we begin to limit down what God can do with us, for us, what He would do in us, and all around us, if we would just stop listening to those two little words, I can't, and exchange them for two others, he can. 
I can't, he can. Some of you know the story of Moses. Most of you have probably seen the Ten Commandments on Easter or Disney's Prince of Egypt. Moses was a man way too willing to embrace his limitations and give God his I can't. I mean, his life's resume certainly seemed like something less than what God was going to be looking for in the man that he would use to call all of the Israelites out of hundreds of years of bondage to their Egyptian captors and lead them into a promised land. When God calls Moses, well, here's his resume. He's Jewish by birth, but he's a current member of Egyptian royalty responsible for oppressing the Israelites for hundreds of years. His resume would go on. He, he, he's a committer of capital murder, resulting in living in obscurity as a fugitive shepherd for 40 years. And oh yeah, don't miss this one. By his own admission, quote, he is ineloquent and slow of speech and tongue. And so when God comes to Moses, some of you know the story, in this form of a burning bush, and calls him to go and confront the Egyptian pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and to tell that Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, do you know what Moses does? Moses does what we do. He says what we say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Moses had likely been speaking the words over himself for some time, but now he speaks them directly to God. I can't. And you might know this. How often does our I can't become moved to and I won't? Writer John Bloom, in recounting this story, says, this is the fearful response of a person who not only feels but knows he's too weak to do what God is assigning him to do. Yes, of course the response lacks faith, but it's an accurate assessment. In his own strength, the reality is Moses is not going to be able to fulfill this assignment. Trembling for Moses is altogether appropriate. Have you ever felt like that? He would write, I certainly have. And in fact, I have a tendency to feel it now more, listen to this, now more in my middle ages than I did when I was younger because I'm much more in touch with my weaknesses and limitations now. I, I have ministry and family leadership failures on my resume, largely through my misplaced confidence in my own wisdom and capacities. I recognize this tendency as a lack of faith, but I can relate to Moses' preference to wander with his flocks through the quiet hills of Horab rather than take up God's assignment. Lord, I'm sure there are more qualified people than I am to... Well, you fell in the blank. I'd really prefer to lay low in the safety of obscurity. This response, however humanly understandable, it misses the point. Now, now, understand, God never calls us to any kingdom responsibility that we're fully capable of pulling off on our own. It doesn't matter whether one is called to confront Pharaoh or to, to love his neighbor enough to share the gospel with him. No one can do what only God can do. And if we don't feel a keen sense of, of inadequacy for whatever assignment God is giving us, we're probably not in touch with reality or the call of God. For when it comes to doing anything that's intended to display God's glory, to advance God's kingdom, to proclaim his word in a resistant world, to 
to win and save lost people, to shepherd souls, to battle demonic powers, to, to mortify our persistent indwelling sin. Well, as Paul said to the, to the church in Corinth, who is sufficient for these things? We need to change the narrative. We need to flip the script from I can't to he can. And guys, that happens in only one way. We have to move our faith off of ourselves and on to God. It was by faith when you were 18 that you thought you were going to have your first million by 25. And for most of us, it didn't work out. See, while we still live by faith in ourselves because of our past failures and foibles and flops, we tend now to just think, well, things aren't going to go, they're not going to go my way, things aren't going to work out, I, I can't, it won't happen. I mean, isn't it ironic, really? Isn't it ironic that we find it hard to move our faith off of ourselves and onto God, even when we have so little faith in ourselves? <laughs> Guys, the flipping of these two little words, it'll change your world. As followers of Christ, we are commanded not to live at the bottom of the U-bend, embracing our limitations and restrictions. But as the most expectant, unrealistically hopeful people on earth, I know you can't, but I'm here to tell you this morning, he can. There is no disease, no addiction, no demon, no bad habit. No bad marriage, no failed parenting, no fault, no vice, no weakness, no temper, no moodiness, no pride, no self-pity, no strife, no jealousy, no perversion, no greed, no laziness that Christ cannot overcome in you. You can't, but he can. And all you need is a little bit of faith. It was this kind of faith that characterized the life of Jesus from his birth right up until his death. The first century physician, Luke, who took it on to write an orderly and well-researched account of Jesus' life, he records that Jesus' mother, Mary, upon being told by the angel Gabriel that she, a virgin, was going to give birth to the Messiah, and, and that her relative Elizabeth, who hadn't been able to conceive and was well past her childbearing years, that she too was pregnant, Mary, well, she responds the way we would, with a form of, I can't. She says, well, how will this be? And Gabriel's response, nothing will be impossible with God. Now you fast forward right to the end of Jesus' life, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed by Judas. Uh, by Judas. In his humanity, Jesus wrestling with the weight of the cross he was about to bear for you and I. And he cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. But then Jesus introduces us to something that is oftentimes frustrating for us. But it wasn't for him. And to us, when we understand it correctly, it could become quite comforting too. Yet not what I will, but what you will. God, I know you can do all things, but God, do what you will. That was Jesus' prayer. 
And I don't know what yours have been like, but mine far too often are, God, I know you can do all things. Now, do what I will. And this is actually, if you think about it, the wonderful promise, the power of God that he has for each of us who would believe. God's power in us, but also God's will for us. His power available in us, but his will over us. Jesus is modeling for us where we want to be within God's power and under his will. And why? Because all things are possible for those who believe. But, but you need to know this. Not all things are profitable. Jesus got it. But just like for us, it's not always easy. See, too often we're uncertain of God's power. We're not sure he could do it. And we're far too certain of our wills. What should happen? Too often we're not so sure God could really change things in our lives. And we're way too certain that what we want changed is right. The Gospels tell two stories of two very different approaches to God when it comes to understanding his power and our possibilities. Mark tells the first, it's the story of a father who brings, according to the scriptures, his demonically possessed child first to the disciples for healing and then to Jesus for healing. The interaction is fascinating. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered. It, it's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And then here comes the pivotal, pivotal words. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I just love Jesus' response. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. If you can, Jesus says, if you can. And with that, Jesus ties God's power and possibilities in our lives, not to maybe what you've been taught, our behavior, how good we've been, how we've kept the commandments, how much money we've given, how often we go to church. No, no, he, he ties it, he ties it, his work in our life to faith. All things are possible, but only for those who believe. Now, this is super interesting. Contrast that with a very similar story, a story that Luke recounts regarding a man with leprosy. Here's, here's what Luke writes. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Guys, did you catch the difference there? It was in the question. It was not, if you can, like the first man. It was a switch. It was if you're willing. See, the leper had already seen enough evidence to know that God could do it. Guys, way too often we live lives of if you can people. We come to God and offer him an if you can faith. We need to change the inner voice, our life narrative. This is not a question anymore for followers of Jesus about if you can. History has shown us time and time again, we know by the preponderance of evidence, we know he can. We need to become, if you are willing, believers. Of course he can, and here's the truth. You only want for yourself and those you love 
what it is that he's willing. And what moves us? What is it that unleashes the power of all things being possible in our lives? Faith. Believe. Believe. Which is pretty exciting news for all of us who've grown up in a religious system or with thoughts about God that have told us over the years that he's only going to reward the best people or he's only going to return to us what we've earned. Guys, you know what the crux of the Christian faith is? It's faith. The writer to the Hebrews said that without it, it's impossible to please God. And, and the good news is this. I'm here to tell you this morning, you don't need that much of it. You remember the demon-possessed boy I was just speaking of who had the father with the, the if-you-can faith? Remember, I, I said that the father had brought the boy to, to Jesus' disciples first to be healed, but they weren't able to do anything to help the boy. And so when Jesus heals him, the disciples naturally begin to wonder. Matthew gives us the, the rest of the story. The disciples came to Jesus in private. Maybe they're a little embarrassed. And they asked them, uh, why couldn't we drive it out? Here's Jesus' response. Because you have so little faith. Truly, I, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. And then here comes the promise that I believe still applies to you on your couch this morning. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. If you have faith, you can live forever like an 18-year-old again, lives filled with expectancy and possibilities and wonder. It does not mean that God becomes some kind of wishing well. Just because all things are possible doesn't mean that all of them are profitable. We want to stay in the sweet spot of God's power in us and his will for us. But here's what it does not mean. You do not, it turns out, have to, have a, to be a titan of faith in order for the power and promise of God to be manifest in your life. In fact, you don't have to have all that much faith at all, and here's why. It's not the power of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. That's why just a little bit of faith in the God of the universe can go a really long way. Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, describes it this way. He said, it's not the quality of the faith itself that saves us. It's what Jesus has done for us. It's easy to assume that being saved by faith means that God will now love us because of the depth of our repentance and faith. But that is to once again subtly make ourselves our own Savior rather than Jesus. It's not the amount of our faith, this is what Jesus is trying to teach, but the object of our faith that saves us. And he gives this fascinating story. He says, imagine two people are, are boarding an airplane. One person has almost no faith in the plane and the crew and is filled with fear and doubts. The other has great confidence in the plane and the crew. And so they both enter the plane, they fly to a destination, and they both get off the plane safely. Now, one person had a hundred times more faith in the plane than the other did, but they were equally safe because it wasn't the amount of their faith, but the object of their faith, which was the plane and the crew, that kept them from suffering harm and arriving safely at their destination. 
we can have the smallest amount of faith as long as we act on it. In this example, we get on the plane. See, when we do that, the result is entirely up to God because it's not the volume of our faith, but the person in whom we place our faith that matters. That's why even a, a tiny amount of faith in God can cause mountains to move. I'm just, I'm just going to give you one more example of this, and then I'll be done. It's a pretty famous encounter in the scriptures between Jesus and a young man described simply as the rich young ruler. It's such an important story that both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them, record it. Some of you know it. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus with one simple question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Many of you know how Jesus responds. He challenges him regarding his adherence to the religious laws, which the, the ruler thought by keeping would get him into heaven. But then Jesus prods him. Jesus pushes him a bit further because Jesus was about to institute and ordain a new law that, that the gospel, all of the scripture, all of the laws would be summed up in one thing. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Jesus says to him, knowing his heart and what it was that he truly loved, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and, and you'll have treasure in heaven and, and then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is it? Indeed, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, if you're using the all things are possible concept, thinking that it's God's will that you be rich, it's probably not. But why is it? Why is it so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because nothing competes for our heart like money. And so now the audience has heard this. Those who heard ask, well, if that's true, who then can be saved? And that's a pretty good question, actually. Like, if it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, well, that seems impossible, Jesus. To which Jesus looked at them and replied, What's impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Friends, if you want a final verdict on what is possible for you through and by faith, understand this. It is by faith, belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that saves even the most unworthy of sinners. If it's by confessing with our lips and believing in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that we're forgiven from all of our sins, and that we, who according to the Scriptures, we who were once enemies of God, have been reconciled and are now beloved children, if that is possible by faith, then I have to ask you, what the heck is it? Couldn't God fix your broken marriage? Couldn't God restore your prodigal daughter? Couldn't God free you from your addiction? Couldn't God resolve your financial mess, change your prognosis, heal your disease? Couldn't God restore all of those years between 18 and 80 that the locusts have eaten? 
I mean all things are possible for him and according to Jesus, for you. If you will just believe. To everybody this morning, caught in the trough of the U-Ben, somewhere between the ages of 18 and 82, I have a message for you. I get it. Life has taught us all a thing or two. And in some ways, you're right. You can't. But stop saying it. You know why? Because he can. Say this and not that. Step off of the paralyzing tarmac of unbelief and get your butt in the plane of faith. This week, pick that place in your life, that person, that relationship, that struggle, fear, worry. Believe that God has the power to overcome it. Believe. You can't. I know you can't, but He can. Become an if-you-will believer, not an if-you-can prayer. And then when it comes to that one thing, I don't care how small your faith is, I don't care how big your fear is, take one little step of if-you-will faith. You know why? Because with God and for you, all things really are possible.